You're listening to One Decision. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. And I'm Richard Dearlove, former Chief of British Intelligence, otherwise known as MI6. Together, Richard and I look at the key strategic choices and decisions that have global impact. We hear from the key decision makers, players and experts, how they arrive at the choices they face and how they impact us all. This week, we have a wonderful conversation with veteran BBC broadcaster James Nochte. He's one of the most familiar voices you can hear on the radio in the UK, and we're talking to him about the recent meltdown of the Scottish National Party that you may have seen last year, as well as his observations on the upcoming US election. He's anchored, I think, on 10 American elections so far, and every British election since the 90s. So he has some very fascinating insights on those two big elections coming up up this year. And he's also been busy writing spy thrillers. So Richard, you obviously had a lot to talk to him about. But first, some important news developments in Israel this week that I wanted to hear your thoughts on, Richard, and namely that Supreme Court ruling that some observers in the country, and I quote a former Supreme Court judge here, the most important ruling since the foundation of the state. Now, what happened was the Supreme Court overturned a law that was right at the heart of Netanyahu's judicial reforms. Remember those that the nation was protesting against earlier in 2023. And so the judges have thrown out one of those laws that aimed at limiting the court's own powers, and they said that it would severely damage Israel's democracy. Richard, how problematic do you think that ruling is for Netanyahu right now, as he primarily deals with a war against the Palestinians? Well, it's a really big deal politically in Israel. And it is a significant blow, I think, to Netanyahu's political position. Look, it was always massively controversial. We saw the huge demonstration against this law that were mounted across all the major towns in Israel. And the people that I know, or the one or two people I've talked to about it, Okay, I won't hide the fact, sort of senior Mossad, retired senior Mossad officers, they were generally outraged by what Netanyahu was trying to do. So the fact that you have a clear court ruling which knocks the law down and re-establishes a clear separation of powers, a clear role for the judiciary which is not compromised by Netanyahu's attempts to sideline them in certain political situations is huge. And coming on top of you know, the catastrophe of October the 7th, the fact that the intelligence failure to an extent is going to be blamed on Netanyahu, or let's say Netanyahu's management of Hamas and the Hamas issue and the whole Gaza issue, and it looks now as though there's a certain complacency about that, in his entourage and in Netanyahu himself. So you've now got two major strikes against him. And, you know, in baseball terms, I don't think we necessarily need a third one. (laughs) His innings looks to me extremely parlous and he's coming, you know, to the end of his political life. But let's face it, Netanyahu is a political cat with nine lives. He's survived the most extraordinary situations already, and maybe there's some way he'll string along. 
and keep going, but I doubt it, frankly. I think that's a really good point. We are certainly nearing the end of Netanyahu's political life, but the question is which life? You know, as you say, he's ha- he's like a cat, he's got nine lives. Which particular life is he at the end of? I think for our listeners to know, Israel, quite like the UK, has no written constitution, but they don't even have an upper house. So the, the stakes were incredibly high. Well, I think, you know, they're in a very parlous and difficult position. You know, they've got a huge problem in the West Bank. They've got an unfinished war in Gaza, and it's going slowly. And to achieve Netanyahu's stated objective is a very big ask. Uh, you have got problems with the Houthis, uh, which have international ramifications in terms of the safety of ships going into the Red Sea through the Straits of Hormuz. And uh, you've got a whole range of difficulties. And it doesn't look to me as though Netanyahu politically in the medium term is well equipped to cope with them. No one's going to turn the government over in the middle of fighting in Gaza. But as soon as Gaza reaches some sort of destination, some sort of conclusion, then I think watch out for politi- you know, very significant political initiatives. Let's turn now to our guest this week, James Nocty. Now, he'll be very familiar to listeners in the UK who hear him regularly on the BBC. But for our international listeners, a brief introduction. For a long time, he was one of the main presenters of the BBC's flagship radio news show, The Today Programme. He is Scottish, in fact, from the same area as myself, and so will be filling us in on the dramatic turn of events in Scottish politics in the last year. Now, dramatic and Scottish politics, even I can admit, have rarely been caught in the same sentence uh, until in late 2022 when events started to unfold that would lead to the stunning unravelling of the political career of one of our most successful leaders in decades, Nicola Sturgeon, who announced her sudden resignation last spring just weeks after insisting in broadcast interviews that she was nowhere near done. But apart from being a keen observer of Scottish politics, Jim's also anchored BBC coverage of US elections for decades. And so we talked to him about his thoughts on 2024 and the upcoming race for the White House as well. And lastly, in recent years, since stepping back from the anchor seat, Jim has been writing spy novels. So Richard will get your thoughts on that and the long running trend of journalists writing about spies, what they get wrong and what they actually get right. Richard, you've known Jim a long time. I love this conversation so much. He's such a thoughtful observer. And of course, these days, it seems like politics everywhere is so unstable and volatile. And he's witnessed so many changes in the years that he's been doing his job. I mean, our listeners probably don't realise, unless they follow UK politics closely, what a big deal the implosion of the SNP is. It's not just an issue that relates to Scotland and Scottish independence or the movement for Scottish independence. It really seminally affects the next UK general election because Labour, who, as it were, are leading in the polls, need to capture a significant number of Scottish seats, which traditionally they always held, but they've lost them over the last decade to the SNP, to the Nationalists. But, you know, since the implosion of the SNP, as Julius described it, there is now a very strong prospect of Labour getting back a number. They won't get more back, but they will get back, I think, some of the urban seats in Glasgow in particular, 
which you know the SNP has, as it were, walked into over the last five to seven years. So you know this is going to weigh heavily in 2024. Uh, Rishi Sunak is obliged to call a British general election because it's got to be done. I think the end of the year, more or less, or maybe it's January 2025, is his absolute deadline. And no one has ever run that late. Uh, so probably we're going to have a general election in September, October, November in that period. And watch what happens in the Scottish seats. That's and It's really a big deal for the shape of British politics for the next five to ten years. Richard, I couldn't have summed it up better myself. Let's get to the conversation. Uh, look, I think anybody who's spent a, a journalistic life dealing in part, at least, with Scottish politics and the politics of the United Kingdom as a as a nation uh, over the last forty plus years really would be bound to come to the conclusion that nothing is static. There's a question as to whether the devolutionary arrangement between Scotland and Westminster at the centre of power remains something along the lines of what it is at the moment, or is perhaps deepened in some way with more powers going to Edinburgh or whether it goes radically towards some kind of independent solution. We just don't know what's going to happen there. But, you know, the fundamental thing, before we move on to your next point on this, the rather obvious one to anyone sitting here and watching politics at the moment, which is that the nationalist bandwagon has come to, if not a shuddering halt, certainly has hit a very, very big bump in the road for all kinds of internal problems, which I'll discuss if you want. But the SNP, the Nationalist Party, for the first time really in more than 20 years, does not seem to be inexorably on the rise and indeed is in, for the moment anyway, a retreat. The spoils being taken by the Labour Party and in turn that makes it, I think, easier, although it's still not easy, for the UK leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, to hope to have an overall majority at Westminster at the next election, because I think that instead of having one seat out of the 59 in Scotland, which is what Labour has got at the moment, it's quite likely to have 20 or more. Recently, I was surprised by this. I saw an interview on the internet with one of my successors as the chief of MI6, saying he thought that one of the biggest threats to UK national security was the separation of Scotland, uh, which is a pretty um, surprising point to make. And it surprised not just me, but a lot of other people. Do you think now that this has definitively gone away? I mean, just looked at at a parochial level, for example, if you take my old service, and we maybe we talk about your espionage yes, yes, later, quite. the right. massive number of the members of it are Scots. Well, um, indeed. And they always have been because of you know Scotland's international tradition. So, you know, beneath this issue, there's some quite tangled... James Bond, famously half Scottish. <laughs> well, there you go. There's some quite tangled and sinister issues. Well, I don't know about sinister, but tangled, certainly. Look, a couple of things. First of all, I agree with you that uh, straight out to say that the biggest, one of the biggest threats to national security is some kind of Scottish independence, I think is, is jumping a lot of fences I mean, if it were to happen, I think it would happen over a long period and we don't know what form it would take. And I, I don't think you can jump to that kind of conclusion, first of all. But the other thing I will say is that when you use the word definitively, 
in terms of whether it's gone away or not. I certainly wouldn't say that. And for the following reason, that I think that what has become very clear in Scotland in the last 15 years particularly, the SNP first took power in the Edinburgh Parliament in 2007, have been in power ever since there, is that among younger Scots, and I mean, let's say, people under 35, independence is still overwhelmingly popular as a concept. Now, the detail is another question, but as a concept, when you go onto a university campus in Scotland and say, do you want Scotland to be independent? It is a bit like going onto a campus in 1986 and saying, do you want Nelson Mandela to be released? I mean, it's in the air. But, and it's a very, very big but, the moment, and we saw this in the independence referendum, which was held in 2014, which produced a substantial majority against independence, despite the SNP pushing for it and having negotiated with the government to get a referendum. What we saw was the minute that you get into detailed arguments, particularly about currency and the financial implications of who pays for pensions that have to be divided up from the old solid UK and all that kind of thing, suddenly this sort of airy-fairy feeling about a wonderful independent Scotland starts to take on a slightly more craggy look and a lot of people, not all by any means, but a lot of people start to edge away from it. And I don't think the SNP have solved that problem yet. And curiously, although they use uh, Brexit, which they were dead against, as an argument for independence saying, look, Scotland could go back into the arms of the European Union, we'd be welcomed, big question mark there, but anyway, we'd be welcomed with open arms all that money would come back in, would be part of the family of nations again, all this stuff. There's a slight problem here. The minute you emphasise Brexit, a lot of voters say, well, hang on, we were told that Brexit would be simple. Not only they would deliver great financial benefits, but that it would be a very simple decoupling. Now, the opponents of independence say, well, if you think uncoupling the UK from its constituent parts is going to be simpler than Brexit. You must be off your nut. <laughs> and so you say, well, that was five years. It was messy. It was difficult. Did the Brexiteers get what they want? Clearly not, they say. What makes them think that pulling apart the UK, Richard, you made the point about people in your old service coming from right across the UK. I mean, it, it is an embedded country in a way that is fundamental. You know, every Scottish family almost without exception, if you go back just a little bit, is a cross-border family. I mean, people have, you know, we, we exist across the border. And I think that the minute you start talking about a serious border, which post-Brexit, of course, it would have to be because Scotland's aim would be to be back in the European Union, so there would be a border with Europe between Berwick and Carlisle in the north of England, and people look at Northern Ireland, the difficulties between North and South there as a consequence of Brexit. So, so the SNP have got a very difficult balancing act in saying Brexit is a good reason for us to push for independence. We needn't go into the detail of this, but there's been huge internal problems inside the SNP, which has exacerbated this. Right. I mean, do you think the SNP's inability... I don't think this is you know, unfair of me to say, but do you think their inability to square that circle has perhaps been 
why the shine has really come off in, in recent years. And sort of part of that, it's I do part, want to ask about Nicholas Sturgeon specifically, because, you know, I think for countries around Europe and the wider world, I'm sure a lot of people will be familiar with the name Nicholas Sturgeon. She's been such a presence on the international stage. I wouldn't be surprised if many of our international listeners would know Nicholas Sturgeon and not, for example, Keir Starmer. And I mean, what happened to her. She was, what a stunning political story. The short answer to your question is, I wish I knew. Um, (laughs) But I can tell you what the outcome was. Look, there has been for nearly three years now, a police investigation in Scotland going on into the finances of the SNP. And the details of that investigation that targets the potential wrongdoing that they've uncovered we simply don't know, has not been made public and and wouldn't be in the normal course of events until charges are laid, if indeed charges ever are laid. But it did involve, and just to fill this in for people who haven't followed it in detail, it did involve the arrest without charge of Nicola Sturgeon's husband, who was really the chief executive of the party, and Sturgeon herself, seven hours of questioning, no charges. She, of course, is insistent that she's unaware of any wrongdoing and participated in no wrongdoing. Her husband says the same. But clearly, the prosecuting authorities in Scotland, who, rather like the French system, and unlike the English system, keep a very close eye on police investigations. And given the public nature of this, arresting the recently resigned First Minister publicly, taking police officers to the House with spades to dig up the back garden, for goodness sake. It was such a public event that the effect of it, of course, has been seismic. And the problem that the SNP face is one of enormous uncertainty, because if there are charges, whatever they are, given what Nicholas Sturgeon and Peter Murrell and the treasurer of the party, who was also arrested, have said, they will deny any wrongdoing absolutely. But if there are charges, there will be a trial. And in all likelihood, it will not be like a Trump trial, which will go off into, you know, the far distance. It would happen fairly smartly. In other words, before the general election. Now, in any political party's lexicon, that's a huge problem. And so it's playing out. But look, there's something else here, which is worth saying, and I don't want to get into too much detail about it. But there was an enormous bust up between Nicola Sturgeon, first minister from 2014 until earlier this year, and her predecessor, Alex Salmond, who had been First Minister from 2007 to 14, they were bosom buddies. Salmond brought her into the party. He, as it were, trained her up. She was in his shadow as his deputy. They then had a court case involving him, which, in which he was cleared, uh, involving personal matters, which he denied from the outset. There was an enormous bust-up, a real falling out among friends. And I think the difficulty, just to finish on this, the real difficulty they've got, is that both Salmond and Sturgeon, whether you're for them or against them, are both extraordinarily potent and talented figures as leaders, quite charismatic in their own way. Of course, they irritate their opponents to kingdom come, but they're very charismatic to their supporters. And I think the SNP thought, well, when Nicola Sturgeon goes, we'll just get another one, we'll find there'll be somebody else. Well, her successor, Hamza Youssef, now First Minister, elected to that position, of course, without an election in the parliament, was just by the party, is not of that calibre. And I think that's widely 
accepted. And so they've got that on top of it. And, you know, for a long time, the SNP traded on the idea that whether you were for or against independence, you had to admit they were competent. They didn't appear to have that sort of one-party state, old Labour in the west of Scotland feeling possibly even in some places corrupt, Buggins turn, you know, uh, it, it was a kind of one-party state in Glasgow for years and years and years. The SNP came in and shook all that up, and a lot of people said, oh, well, uh, at least they get things done, whether you're for or against independence. The problem with the, <laughs> the situation they're in now is people have started to look at the policy outcomes a little more closely and said that in education and health and transport and so on, there are difficulties. So the sheen has really been stripped away. Right. For a long time, they were really sort of geniuses at marketing, essentially. And I think that was yes. sort of at the key to, to their success. And the Labour Party didn't know how to fight back because a lot of younger Labour supporters looked down to London and said, we're facing a generation of conservative government because the Labour Party's sort of disappearing in the years when Jeremy Corbyn led it. There was absolutely no chance it was going to win a UK general election. If you were a left-leaning young voter in Scotland, you could believe quite easily, although I think it's a slightly naive interpretation, but you could believe quite easily that the SNP offered you a kind of social democratic on the European model way out. And so you would be quite happy to go down that road, even if you didn't like the details of independence. I think that has been set on fire now as an argument. And if Labour can come up with an alternative, a deeper form of devolution, you know, powers devolved from Westminster, but not the absolute power of self-determination. I think a lot of people who have voted SNP for, you know, two or three decades now, will go back home to the Labour Party, which, after all, dominated Scottish politics for the 40 years until the 1990s. I was just going to interpose a question. And, you know, I go to Edinburgh a fair amount because my daughter lives up there. And, you know, we've had some Scottish friends. But what has struck me over the past four or five years is the sheer unpleasantness of aspects of Scottish politics and I certainly know a number of who I thought were dyed-in-the-wool Scots who sold up and moved south because they just couldn't stand it. No, I think that's true. Look, I think there is – people talk about this a great deal. I think there is a slightly harsh side on the independence side of the argument, which is reciprocated. And I think it, in that sense it has been divisive. I think there's been – a politics that's become rather, you know, whose side are you on? It's not as catastrophically divisive as the situation we see in the United States at the moment, where, you know, the congressional parties have just drifted apart so that publicly they can't be seen to be talking to each other, which was never the case 30, 40 years ago. Now, it's not as ugly as that. You don't get the rhetoric which is hyped up on the, you know, on the scale that you see in the States. But some of it is pretty bad. And I think the sense of air going out of the balloon is palpable. And I think one of the things that inevitably happens when you get a party which has been on a roll for years and increasing in numbers and, you know, all powerful and so on, the minute that it starts to seem to be human like everybody else, feet of clay, then all sorts of stuff which people didn't really talk about, starts to be talked about. And one of the things, I think, is, you know, if you like the ugly undercurrent of rhetoric, that 
an independence nationalist divide obviously opens up because you start to get you know anti-English rhetoric and so on. Now, it was always Nicola Sturgeon's determination to try to say that she would never have any time for that. She didn't. She didn't like it. She thought it had no place in her party. Her opponents always said, "Well, uh, that's not." Uh, the way that it looks if you're on the ground campaigning against the SNP. I mean, I think there are probably pretty horrible examples right across the spectrum. But it did certainly raise the temperature, there's no doubt. And the fact that the SNP have gone slightly off the boil means that except on the fringes with you know pretty extreme people, the atmosphere has cooled quite a bit. Jim, as someone who's anchored every US presidential election since 1988, I wanted to ask you about the situation we find ourselves in the US. And I just want to read out something that you said in your recent radio series, Letter to America. You wrote, for older Americans, the simple contours of the Cold War episode must evoke a certain nostalgia. The world seems straightforwardly divided between East and West, democracy on one side and communism on the other. The transatlantic alliance was unbreakable because it had to be. How different it seems in 2020, that that 2020 was back when you were recording this. And I just want to quickly note, um, it's unsurprising that you've chosen to set uh, your latest thriller in the background of the Cold War. So perhaps there's a little nostalgia that you feel for, for that period. But I wanted to just ask what you made of the division, the tribalism, the instability, the, I hate to use the word, unprecedented, but unprecedented situation we have with former President Trump, who's in the docks, may be running for president from jail and may even still win. Well, I think there are two things. There's the Trump personality, which, of course, is extraordinary. Uh, I mean, here is a man who describes himself as a friend of Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, (laughs) as a great admirer of President Xi, who, as he puts it, keeps 1.4 billion people under his thumb or under his foot. I can't remember which the phrase was. Well, yes, that's certainly true. And who says that he was the apple of Putin's eye. Now, and then goes on to describe the president of his own country as a lying son of a bitch. Now, You don't need to go any further in saying that's a president, ex-president, talking in a way that Americans have never heard an ex-president talk before. So he's sui generis. But it always seems to me that the point about Trump that some people on this side of the pond often miss, that Trump didn't create the anger that elected him. He simply gave it a voice. It was there anyway. And I think it had built up for all kinds of reasons, uh, a sense of economic slide, a feeling that the promise of each generation being better off than its predecessors being betrayed or certainly at least not realized, a feeling that the 20th century, which was Americans culturally, militarily, industrially, was not going to be the same in the 21st century where it might well be China's. All these things came together. And in a country where you're taught fundamentally that you must always think about yourself and your inheritance, God-given, as it's often said, through the Constitution and the Founding Fathers. It's a very, very bitter pill to swallow. And unfortunately, I think, for the American kind of political system, Trump came along with his animal instinct, I mean, a kind of feral feeling for these hurts and complaints and uh, slights that people felt about their national identity. And he turned them into an absolutely fantastic bandwagon. He's 
opponents, of course, would say that it was demagoguery. But whatever happened, he did it against the odds in 2016, as we know. And what we've got is a culmination of this. You know, I first went, and Richard, you'll remember the era very well. I first went as a student, I was still in my teens, to America in 1970, and did what we all did and went around in a Greyhound bus and so on and saw the country for the first time and spent a whole, you know, three months there or something. And, of course, it was the height of Vietnam. The height had passed, but it was still embroiled in Vietnam. It was a war that had divided the country, obviously. It had divided generations, young and old. It had divided families. It was a fantastically painful episode coming on top of, you know, the chaos of 1968 and the assassination of Kennedy in 63, followed by Watergate immediately afterwards. There was a sense of America falling apart. And people have been told this cannot happen, but it seemed to be happening before their eyes. Well, I thought that you could never imagine the country being so deeply divided as it was during Vietnam, but I think it's more divided now than it was then. And I think that's a measure of the danger that they face, because it seems to me intractable. There are all kinds of reasons for that, the atomization that social media produces, the, the way the media landscape has changed. They're all they all play a part in it, but it's deeper than that too. Jim, you recently did a talk with a certain James Comey talking about uh, <laughs> thrillers, something that you have in common with the yes. former director of the FBI. You've both become novelists. Tell us about that and tell us about how you went on to that path. Well, it, it was a very interesting conversation because I, part of it was in public and part of it was recorded interview on air and, and there was a conversation which I don't think I would describe as private but was a much more freewheeling one, you know, uh, with, without an audience. And, uh, of course, what I wanted to ask him was whether he felt as somebody who has expressed deep distaste for the Trump presidency and deep alarm about the prospect of a comeback whether he believed that it was his intervention 10 days before the 2016 election on the question of Hillary Clinton's emails, uh, that effectively by reopening that question in a way that produced no eventual comeback in terms of legal proceedings, whether he felt that he'd handed the election to Trump. And his answer was a very uncomfortable answer, I think, for him. <laughs> yeah. He says he thinks about it a lot. Well, I bet he does. <laughs> but he... He said that he thinks that he did the right thing at the time. And, of course, clearly he also said that he believed that she was going to win anyway. And I think that must be a very pain. In other words, it wasn't going to change the result of the election. I think that must be a very painful episode. But he, his thriller, which is not bad at all, actually, is, is essentially a courtroom mafia story set in New York where he was a prosecutor before he went to the FBI. And he prosecuted the mob. I mean, that's sort of what, I mean, if you're a, a DA in the Southern District of New York, I mean, that's what you spend half your time doing. And, you know, he sat across from these uh, beautifully coiffured Italian men and tried to send them down. And this is quite a good story that there's, there's sort of politics involved in it and murder and all the rest of it. But I talked to him about how he did it, and he talked to me about why I did him. It's slightly not exactly a conversation between equals. I mean, he was head of the FBI. I was a mere radio presenter. But this business about going from reality to fiction, because after all, if you tell a story on the BBC, it better be true. Or at least as journalists used to say, well, it was true when I wrote it. You know, <laughs> things do change <laughs> after the fact. But obviously, we are obliged to perform somersaults to make sure that what we say is justified and, as far as we know, true. And the whole point about making it up is a joyous expedition. And, you know, I was joking with Richard that 
the one thing that I didn't do quite deliberately when I was producing this, these three books, of which this is a third, I deliberately didn't get into long conversations with people about the events because they're set in a real background, but not about real events, completely imaginary events, because I feared that then I would start writing a history about the, the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985, which is a background to the story that I've just written, or indeed the, uh, the story of the now famous British agent in Moscow. And if I talked to people who knew the insides of these things, and I knew people who were involved to some degree, certainly in the Anglo-Irish thing, I feared I would have been drawn into worrying about accuracy and making sure. And I didn't. I wanted to make it up as much. It's really quite important. And that was quite a discipline. Uh, funnily enough, I think Comey's book is much closer to the truth than mine is. I mean, mine is pure fantasy. I just think this could have happened. And what I was trying to do and is not write about events as such, but write about the people and how they were affected by events and what it must be like. And Richard, you may recognise this. I mean, it just seems to me that the thing that fascinated me about the central character that I've put in this book is ambassador to Washington through various strange things. He's become ambassador, but he was trained and was an operative in your old service originally. That's where he cut his teeth. And one of the interesting things about him is that it seems to me that the most interesting, fulfilling and important things that he does in his life are the very ones about which he can't tell anybody. And that's a very interesting piece of pressure, which you know very well. Yeah, well, if I can just add, I mean, of course, as you're probably aware, that is a passage of people that interchange or have done in their careers between yes. conventional yes. diplomacy and the intelligence service. So there are quite a few people who fit the paradigm and Indeed. quite a few people who've reached very senior positions on either side, both as diplomats or as very senior yes. officers in SIS. So I think you're making a very cogent point. But and the, I think it, you, your point about inventing your books is very, very interesting because I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is if you go back to a period when there was very little about the intelligence community in the, in the public domain, there was almost, a, a, let's say, a substitution culture. So that when people like Le Carre wrote fiction, a lot of people now believe that actually that isn't really fiction at all. It was what it was really like. And mm. it gives status. And I think that Comey, you know, coming out of the FBI would be almost unavoidable for him not to write something which was based essentially on his experience and knowledge of the inside of the FBI. And I bet you, yes. it's, you know, I bet you there are parallels. I mean, I won't give you chapter and verse, but there are a couple of no. very good authors now writing about British intelligence. And I know when I read those books that in them, there are my former colleagues' DNA, which has been snipped up and rejoined in different. But I can read well, two pages and say, hey, I know who that person is. Then you turn over and he's somebody else because he's injected a bit more of another person's personality into the character. Yes, yes. Well, there's, I mean, there's one that, whom I know who's written a number, and I think they seem to me to have the, the crackle of the real thing about them. And, you know, I've got no connection with, with anybody who – I mean, and talk to anybody inside your old game about it. I mean, I just observed and sort of, you know, obviously I've read a lot and so on. 
Uh, I think I know who you're talking about. Yes, in, in, in the novels, yes, and I think yeah. he's very good. He's very good. His pen name is Alan Judd. And That's correct. And should read his books because they're very good and they're surprisingly authentic, and they are novels. <laughs> they are, and, yes, and I've, I've talked to him about, about the whole thing as well. I mean, the, the other thing that fascinates me, you see, is that there is the question of the story, what happens, would this have happened, is this credible? And in, in my story, The Spy Across the Water, the, the essence of it is that Fleming, as ambassador to Washington, through various chance encounters, meets up with someone with whom he had a secret but trusting relationship when he was doing some work on Ireland or the Irish Troubles. And he was called in for various reasons to help with something. And it turned out that they had a professional relationship, shall we say, across the lines. And this comes back to life. Now, the details of it, the you know, the business of how it is worked and so on, I'm in no position to know what the truth is or not. So I made it up. I thought it was plausible. But what I'm really interested in is how two people like that who've developed a relationship of trust for professional reasons on, on one side because they believed that it was right to help the other side to try to bring this thing to an end and on Fleming's part to walk in a dangerous path because this was a very precious insight into what was going on. Now, these things are, you can imagine what the pressure on individuals is there. And what I was trying to write a bit is how do people react to this and how, when they come together again after all these years at a moment of, of some sensitivity and crisis, how they work out the balance between their trust for one another and actually their fondness for one another, but their rivalry and protecting their respective interests, which in both cases they're very loyal to. So, I mean, that's, you know, it's the duality of the whole position, which, of course, is bound to be fascinating to outsiders. I mean, it just is. Yeah. Well, I recognise what you're describing. I won't go into professional <laughs> No, I bet you do. I mean, the, the, other, the other thing I'm interested in is, you know, Fleming is – He's a smoothie. I mean, he's gregarious. He's elegant. You know, he's an intelligent man. He can make a great speech at a diplomatic reception. He can write a telegram that will knock the socks off people back in Whitehall, all these things. He can do the job. He can work at it. And he's, you know, he's very bright and he knows a lot of things. But, of course, in the end, all this gregariousness has to be replaced at times by a very solitary life because it has to be private and indeed secret, even from his family. Uh, I mean, not in every detail, but, you know, in the really important bits. And he says to his sidekick, who's a rather nice guy, and Fleming likes him. This is He's head of station in Washington at a rather young age and um, unusual, but Fleming kind of upped him because he liked him. And Fleming thinks that he is what he was like when he was young, when he was 35, and he confides them in him. And he says, you know, the thing about solitary men referring to himself, is that we enjoy being alone together with other solitary men. And it's a very, I don't know, I just find that as a human condition, which is in a sense forced on you, although people choose it, it's very interesting because it puts you in a position that most people don't experience, at least not at that, at that level of seriousness or sensitivity. Yeah. Jim, is it hard as the author of a spy novel to write a story and develop a central character 
under the immense hulking shadow of James Bond. I mean, I do note with interest that your character's well, <laughs> last name is Fleming, after all. There might have been something unconscious about this, but it certainly wasn't deliberate. I don't know if you're aware of this, Richard, but I was rung up by somebody about a year ago who is a writer and has written on military things, and I think it's a, a considerable knowledge of your old service, who had been asked to write a sort of fictionalised biography of Bond. I mean, a, a you know, a proper, this is what it must have been like. And um, were you aware of this? I think I've heard a bit about it, yeah. 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 Yes. Well, And, and the, the Fleming estate, in the end, as I understand it, I was talking to somebody the other day, I sort of put the foot down and said, we're not having it because they're very protective of the genre and so on. I think from their point of view, it's daft, but the something to do with me. Um, I mean, Richard mentioned the carry, and I know that he divides very much opinion among your old colleagues. But, you know, that is a hulking presence, not because I don't look at him from the same point of view as you do as to whether his interpretation of betrayal and loyalty and so on is is remotely accurate or proportionate. But as a writer, I mean, it is extraordinary stuff. I mean, if you read... Uh, you know, Tinker Tailor and Smiley's People and so on, you think, how could anybody do it as well as that again? Simply as a piece of fiction, not talking about its veracity or verisimilitude, but it's pretty good stuff, I think you would have to admit. Well, Le Carre, for various reasons, does drive me rather uh, <laughs> yes. mad. But, I mean, that's mainly because uh, he makes the currency of betrayal, the currency of relationships inside my former service, whereas the currency that makes the service function is trust. So he, he flips the coin. But of course, he flips the coin because, you know, books about trust don't make exciting reads where about betrayal. No, well, that's true. And I, I can see how that's. But, you know, he I know that he had a, a dilemma, I think, when he was on some trip to Moscow, I think, quite late on, and had the opportunity. And it was presented as a, you know, as an opportunity to meet Kim Philby before his death, the, obviously for any listener who doesn't know, the arch, the arch traitor in the 40s and 50s. And he declined and he said that it was because, although, of course, in some ways he would have, you know, it would have been perfect to meet him. I mean, we just, you know, what do you make of him? But he just, he couldn't stomach it. Now, you may believe that or not, but I think there was an element of feeling that that this was somebody who had sold the shop and that really you couldn't, in the end, break bread with him. Well, you probably know that I had a, something of a public dispute with Le Carre. Indeed. Which was quite interesting because I, I, I did an interview at um, Cliveden, the book festival, and, and discussed his novels. And I, I certainly, you know, don't sort of detract from his reputation as a brilliant novelist. And we all loved reading his yes. novels. Yeah. But what I, you know, was concerned about was the way that he subscribed to what I would just call moral equivalence. And, you know, in his world, the KGB and SIS were as bad as each other. They were both black dogs. Well, this is w what he often wrote. But I think Jim, you've put your finger on something important. He didn't actually believe that. 
in the end. No. And he did have a sense of what was right and wrong. And I think what I regret is that the dispute we had was conducted in letters and, you know, in, in interviews. Yeah. We never actually got the chance, although I had met him several times, to sit down and talk this through, which I would very much have liked to do. And there's no question that he's the preeminent espionage novelist of that period. Jim, I have a, a contact of mine who may or may not belong to Richard's old world, but he has this theory about journalists who write spy novels and notes that there have been quite a few of them and that there is this uh, this dream inside so many journalists uh, who often find themselves at the pointy end of, of history and events that they all wish that they had a spy in them and that what has stopped them from that was that journalists in the end are all blabbermouths and so they end up writing about spies instead of... Not guilty, not guilty. <laughs> Could you comment on that? <laughs> the first thing is Richard knows me well <laughs> enough to know I would be absolutely hopeless. I mean, I, I can't keep my mouth shut for 10 seconds. Um, so uh, it would be, I would be awful. But that's what my contact says. Journalists all make would all make terrible spies, but they dream of being in the service. <laughs> but hang on, it strikes me that between the two trades, put it like this, there is this in common that they're both driven by insatiable curiosity about people, and that it's working out what's going on behind the eyes. Now that doesn't. You know, you may be doing that in some cafe in Vienna, but if you're watching a prime minister making a speech or some poor sod at a by-election being torn apart, it's the same process. You're trying to get behind the veil. And, of course, there's also the same love and drive to have a piece of information that no one else has got. And, that, you know, and in that sense, the currency is common, but the, the life... It, you know, it's entirely different. And just for the record, nobody ever touched me on the shoulder or anything else. I, well, it made more sense, really. It wouldn't have gone very far. Richard, would you have given Jim a job in <laughs> SIS? No way. <laughs> exactly. I'm glad to hear it. This is excellent. <laughs> I want this on the record. Um, no, no, absolutely. You wouldn't have got a job in a newspaper, so there we are. <laughs> I, I don't know. But anyway... Yeah. I would have given him a drink in oh, well, Viennese bar any day okay. of the week. And I would have reciprocated. <laughs> that's it for this week's episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Drop us a line. Tell us your thoughts. What decisions have impacted you and where you live? You can write to us. Our email is onedecision at onedecisionpodcast.com. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time. <laughs>